HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Patina Events at Brooklyn Botanic Garden, an idyllic location for weddings, corporate events, and parties of any style. Visit us at patinaevents.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Good evening, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. Just a quick note on our programming today before we get started. Um, Today is actually the last day we're going to be recording from the studio until further notice, given the COVID-19 outbreak. Um, We're going to be doing our best here at Eating Matters to record remotely and making sure uh, we're still able to proceed with our regular programming. So thank you in advance for bearing with us. Um, Okay, now to the topic at hand. Today we're going to be talking all about aquaculture or farmed seafood. It's one of the most efficient ways to produce protein, and it's helped improve nutrition and food security around the world. And yet, it's an industry that still continues to face challenges challenges and criticisms. Today, we're going to learn a little bit more about one company, Quarry Arctic, which is a third-generation salmon farm located in the near the Arctic Circle. This company is on a mission to evolve open-water salmon farming into a sustainable practice that protects the environment and also promotes animal welfare while providing a healthy source of protein for the growing world. Joining me on the line today to get into all of this um, and exactly how the company is living up to its mission is Quarry Arctic CEO, Alf Knudsen, and Jen Bushman, who's a sustainable aquaculture advocate and consultant for the company. Alf and Jen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Um, So you guys were supposed to be with me in person today, but unfortunately, given the circumstances, you're not. And and Alf, you are uh, broadcasting from Norway. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. <laughs> very it's, uh, it's late. Yeah. It's late. I know. I was going to say it's very late. Thank you so much for for uh, yeah. joining me at this hour, especially. Um, and I hope you guys no are both doing well. Um, okay, so let's start. Alf, when was this company founded, and and by whom? 
so the company uh, Quarry Fiskopjat was founded by my uh, uh, yeah the the father of my father-in-law in 1976. So it has a quite a long story to be as a farming company in Norway, one of the oldest one, uh, still a family company in the north of Norway. So it's uh, it's part of the yeah I'm married into the family. You married into the family. Did you have a background as yeah. a fisherman or? Uh, no, I don't have a background as a fisherman. My my father was actually a fisherman, so I have um, I have a fishing story in my family. But I was not supposed to be uh, working in a fish company. Actually, uh, I have a I have uh, my stories that I met my wife uh, at uh, teacher school, and um, that uh, relationship led me to meet her father. That uh, saw something in me and uh, yeah he hijacked me before I came became a teacher so <laughs> <laughs> um, I ended up in in quarry yeah. in, in the industry are you so where is this where is quarry and am I pronouncing that right quarry yeah yeah. Okay. Yes, I know. You, yeah, you know, it's good. hard for us Americans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, especially in those, uh, we have the O with the line through, and that's not easy. Yeah, but yeah. Like, what is that? Uh, so, uh, yeah, we're actually located right on the Arctic Circle uh, in the north of Norway. So it's, uh, yeah, north of Norway. It's in north, uh, middle, middle of Norway, uh, actually. Um, so, but we have... Uh, we don't have an Arctic uh, environment, but it's uh, it's quite north because of the Gulf Stream. We have a very good and warm and not so snowy environment, except for today. It's quite snowy today and yeah. windy. Yeah. So, um, and it's an island. Yeah, it's a it's a small island just outside the coast of Norway. You know. You know, Norway has a lot of islands, especially this area has a lot of islands. Actually, in this county, there's uh, 1,300 islands, mm. um, where only 10 of them are inhabited. Uh, but if you go 50 years back, there were like 50 of them were inhabited. So it's uh, in Norway, we uh, tend to live where there are, uh, yeah, where it's possible to live. We even have a TV show called Where No One Taught Anyone Could Live. Uh, so, um, yeah. and that's <laughs> where you live. Exotic, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so and I've read that your your location is is perfect for salmon farming. Why mm. is that? What are the conditions that make it so perfect? That is correct. It's it's you know we have the Gulf Stream coming up for the Mexi- from the Mexican Gulf, so we have uh, we are north of uh, or yeah of Iceland even so we should have a colder environment because mm-hmm. of the Gulf Stream we have a we don't have that cold environment the coastal environment on on where we are 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 a bit warmer so if you go inland of course it's very cold mm-hmm. uh, but here we have a perfect environment for farming because the fish uh, thrives when the temperature is between 8 and 12 and and most of the year that's the temperature but we have uh, at the lowest, we have three degrees, and at the highest, we have 15 degrees. And, you know, the salmon uh, stops eating at uh, under two and over 15. So oh. uh, huh. it's, um, yeah, it's quite um, quite exceptional. And it's the best area in Norway for farming because of, not only because of the temperature, but also because of the 
islands and and uh, uh, yeah, the hidden places to farm without the, the open sea being a factor for uh, bad weather. So yeah, oh, for bad weather. And just to be clear, like three degrees Celsius is still. You know, it's like 38 degrees Fahrenheit or something. So it's not balmy. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's not so warm. <laughs> and it's but, not that, but, you know, the fish doesn't need, uh, uh, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't use any feed to, to regulate the temperature or anything. So it, it can eat and grow still if it's three degrees. So that's unique for um yeah, an animal. Uh, and we're going to talk mm. more about what you what you feed the yeah. fish. But um, I just just to kind of um, further sort of set the stage. So Quarry is a it's a sounds like it's a remote island with a really small mm. population, right? Yeah. It, how many people live there? Uh, at the moment, we're eighty-five. I think I haven't. Wow. Uh, we haven't done a counting in, <laughs> in a while. Uh, but yeah, it's eighty-five. And is everyone on the island dedicated to the industry or work for the company? No, absolutely not. We are. We have twenty-six employees, and out of those, uh, uh, we even have uh, seven people that uh, commutes from the mainland and out to mm-hmm. the island. Um, so other businesses on the island is uh, there's a actually a staircase factory. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is one guy making salt. There's another company that makes uh, uh, seaweed uh, snacks, uh, and there's uh, the school, kindergarten, uh, the shop, the restaurant, the pub. So there are a quite active uh, yeah. environment, and also fishermen, of course. Yeah. So we are. Yeah. Okay. So Alf is the CEO of also of the travel bureau, so yeah, sorry, uh, you yeah, know yeah, he has to promote all of the activities on the oh. island. So if you, when all of this lifts, <laughs> if you want to be able to go to the island, the tourism yes. board, you can you can reach out to Alf. Yes, thank you, Jen. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, yeah, I feel like your yeah, Norway is like particularly um, like not excited about mm. the idea of Americans coming there right now, given our lack um, of. <laughs> Yeah, lack of uh, the lack of appropriate response by our federal government in containing and tamping down this um, outbreak, but with good reason. Um, okay, so this company I read that it started with three thousand fish. Um, with your that would be your, I don't your your I don't know what is that? You're not your not your grandfather your grandfather in law. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. So it started it with three thousand fish. How big is the operation today? How much has it grown? Yeah, it has grown a lot. It's uh, we're just above two million salmon per year. Wow! So it's, uh, it's okay. uh, but still, you have to understand it. We're a small company in Norwegian uh, farming uh, industry. I think we're zero point four percent of the Norwegian farming industry. Uh, I think wow. it's uh, it's around one point two million metric tons a year, and we are only eight thousand of those huh wow okay that is mm. um that is that's surprising especially given some of the supplier relationships um you've developed mm. which we've we'll, we'll talk about a little bit later but now let's talk a little mm. bit about um aquaculture kind of in general um jen you're an aquaculture specialist i know also so mm. can you ta- just kind of give us a really brief overview of the types of aquaculture available and what different and what you know types um Quare is is uh, implementing right now. Absolutely. I, I mean, 
the reality is, although a lot of people make that choice, you know, is it farmed or is it wild? And they have this bad feeling about farmed fish in general and, and shellfish. But the truth is that we've been farming fish and shellfish for hundreds of years. And I mean, King Kamehameha used to farm Kampachi off of the coast of Kona. So this has been part of our food heritage, but at scale has really only been done since the 1980s as, as that industry has grown and particularly as the demand for salmon has grown. So give you an, to give you an idea, there's over 200 million metric tons of fish and seafood that's either harvested or reared. So harvested from the ocean and, 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 the, and the freshwater stocks or raised. And of all of that, it's about 55 to 60%, depending on um, what statistics you're reading, that's raised fish. As a matter of fact, in the United States, we have almost 65% farmed fish farmed fish and seafood. And the species are are broad. I mean, Atlantic salmon is one of the leading ones. Of course, we love our oyster farmers. There's Kampachi, striped bass, Branzino, um, Baramundi, many, many cod, uh, you know, even, even now yellowfin tuna. We're really making amazing advancements in sustainable, ethical aquaculture. And that's one of the reasons why I love working with um, Quarry Arctic so much, because this is a program that really has been best in class and leading the industry in these innovations to make farming better and better and better. Um, wow, that's amazing. I, I was One of my questions was like, how long has aquaculture been a thing? And I feel like you check yeah. that, that off. <laughs> you answered both the very historical perspective and also as an industry, you know, since the 80s. So um, good, good to know. When we, when we talk about aquaculture, though, I think, I think the the perception is um, for a lot of people like these pens in the middle of like a field or, you know, inland basically um, with like a lot of fish kind of crowded around, but that's Mm -hmm. just one type of farming. Right. And certainly, and we're going to, we'll, we'll get into kind of like, I, off in a minute, I want to, I want you to kind of walk us through and paint a picture of what, what your operations look like. But um, what are the other types? Like where else can you um, like raise fish, like in mm-hmm. the open waters, in um, what other environments? Well, I mean, I think the one that everyone will recognize is the heritage trout. You know, trout in the United States has been raised in raceway systems. Imagine long, um, almost like swimming lanes in a pool separated by a cement divider. Mm -hmm. And the fish will um, literally race from one side down to the other. Um, And we are raising those fish um, in either state-owned fisheries or raceway systems or or privately held um, groups like riverance trout. And these, these fish are raised from egg all the way to harvest on land. There are also pond systems. Um, Think of raised pools. You know, your grandmother used to have the raised pool that they built in the backyard. (laughs) And and there are fish that are raised in that, like tilapia. Mm -hmm. And then we have the ones that we love to think about in the U.S., oysters and the beautiful oyster beds. uh, You know, this regenerative aquaculture with sea kelp and seaweed and and oysters and mussels, similar to what they're seeding the Hudson Bay with, to begin to start to see that regenerative effect on the water to cleanse the water. And then we have open ocean net pen farming, which is one of the most important. And I will say this, the world is 71% water. So when we look at the total amount of 
existing open ocean and lake water, if we farm on those waterways, instead of ways that we set up on land, if we farm on those, we only have to farm on the size of water the size of Lake Michigan, in order to be able to give the the wild stocks a break, be able to replenish our oceans, and be able to raise enough protein for the growing population. Wow. Why has this production method kind of gotten a, a bit of a bad rap in the past, though? What was the catalyst for that? I think a lot of it is just, you know, in the old days, if I were to look at commodity farming, I, you know, I think our narrative around land-based farming was a good one. My grandfather was a third generation cattle rancher. My great, great, great grandmother was one of the first women to ever um, settle on rural, on rural Colorado, on the Eastern Plains. And I have a picture of visiting that ranch and seeing cows that were healthy out on the plains, beautiful corn waving in the wind. And that's my image of what land farming looks like. Mm -hmm. When I go into a grocery store, my image as I see, you know, whether it's beef or I see that corn goes right back to that romanticized image of the farm. We don't have that image on water. Part of the issue of something being commoditized so quickly is there were a lot of bad farming practices. Technology wasn't where it was today. We weren't, we didn't have the feed models, all of those things that have really increased and, and really made better farming methods, just like now how we can raise chicken well and we can raise chicken badly. That's no different over the course of those couple of decades as it is for aquaculture. And, and, um, when we think about the quarry specifically, is this considered open ocean or because it, it's kind of like protected? I mean, is it in the fjords or is it in the like wide open? What kind of where does this type of aquaculture fall? No, it's it's uh, we have uh, we have uh, avoided the fjords actually because uh, because of uh, uh, our experience with fjords and environment and how the water is changed and everything. It's it's not. Uh, it's not optimal for farming. Uh, we are in open waters. We're in between islands, of course, but it's it's open water flowing uh, through all the time. It's not like the fjord is being. Uh, it's a loop of water uh, mm. going around in the fjord. Uh, it's uh, it's north and south. Um, so our farms are in in open waters, uh, protected open waters. Okay. And and just to mm. define it, yeah. um, mariculture mariculture is going to be deep um, ocean farming. We have a couple of great examples of that. Blue ocean mariculture is raising kampachi off the coast of Kona in um, in these nets that are sub- completely submerged mm-hmm. um, under the water. Uh, open blue cobia, they're doing the same thing off of the coast of Panama. That's, that's something that is going to start to grow as well. And remember that the ocean, if we can move, we want water that's really moving, right. that's churning, that's that's getting the fish to swim and get a lot of exercise and moving a lot of fresh water through it. You you know, everyone should understand there are less fish in a fish farm pen than there are when the fish school together. It's usually only about two fish for every cubic ton of water. Hmm. Um, and so wait, so the open ocean, that's different than like the deep ocean is a, di- a different form. Is that what you're saying? 
That's correct. Okay, so we have the type of aquaculture where with Quarry Arctic, where mm-hmm. you, um, and then we have, and then we have mariculture, which is in the deeper ocean. Got it. Okay. Okay. Great. Yeah. So so let's uh, let's get into kind of describing. I don't know uh, which one of you wants to take this, but you know, to someone who's never seen this operation or anything like this, how would you kind of describe what it looks like? Yeah, I can I can try to do that. It's um, it's uh, the farms are. Like I said, located in uh, in uh, protected areas, uh, where actually one of the areas where we have uh, three of our farms is the is the traffical route of the boats uh, uh, along the coast of Norway. So when you see a farm, it's uh, from distance it looks like yeah we have the barge, the feed barge flowing there. It looks like a house actually on the on the ocean just floating there. Mm-hmm. Uh, many people believe it it stands on the on the magnetic or bottom of the sea, but it's actually a concrete fl- floating barge uh, that uh, contains all the feed, of course, uh, and all the technology and everything to get the feed out and and to monitor the farms. And then you have between sixteen and six. We have five different farms, so between sixteen and six uh, pens uh, on each farm. And each pen uh, is uh, around 90 to 120 meters in diameter, or in diameter, and then uh, the nets underneath are between 20 and 25 meters deep. Uh, and then you have uh, buoys that holds the mooring system and and uh, yeah connects all the pens and everything, and and you have a uh, feed pipes that goes out from the feed barge and out to all the all the pens. So what you see from the surface is uh, just a small small uh, part of uh, of the of the farming. Uh, it's actually when underwater where you have most of it. They say you can you can have a Boeing 737 um, and and put it inside one of the pens. That's oh. how big one of our pens are. Yeah. Uh, and as as Jennifer says, it, the fish has a lot of space, and we have even reduced the amount of fish we have in each farm to to be under two kilo per cubic in each pen. So, um, so how far away? There are five different farms. How far away are these different farms from each other on the water? Uh, I, I can. I can almost see all of them from my office, but okay. still there are there's a in Norway we have a regulated distance between the farms that mm-hmm. you need to have, so they are it has to be over five kilometers from each farm oh. so we have more than that uh, between our farms and we are we have the only farms in our area so we are we are in a kind of a our area of farming. There are neighbors around us, of course, but not in not in uh, the distance that you can see them from our farms. Uh, and how long does it take to grow salmon from birth to harvest? Yeah, it depends on if you count uh, from hatchery to to uh, harvest. But it, from from we put it out into the sea until it's finished harvest, it's between twelve and sixteen months. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, and do they spend their entire lives in one pen? Uh, yeah, they or we try to, because handling fish is is never good. And handling them, uh, moving them from pen to pen, we need to 
uh, use a well boat or yeah or handle the fish and that you try to avoid that because you want the fish to stay in water and not be pumped out uh, until it's going to harvest for the quality and everything and for mortality and those things we we put out so little fish in each pen that they can grow uh, until harvest size in each pen without uh, moving them from pen to pen so that uh, that gives them a even more space in the beginning, of course. And when they are harvest ready, it's two kilo per cubic. Um, I read that that salmon can have heart attacks and that they're they're prone to them. Is that true? (laughs) Yeah, it can happen. uh, That that is true. Uh, Poor guys. uh, All all fisheries are are, uh, in the wild. They are very, um, what do you call it, English word for it. They're, they're easy to scare. Yeah. So, Skittish, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, of course, uh, our fish that has been breeded for so many years, uh, uh, yeah, it, it can take uh, the boats coming, the feed coming, all of those things without being scared. But then you have uh, fish that will have, uh, yeah, will easy scare and then can have heart attacks, of course. And there are, I know there's a lot of. Uh, Farms that are in areas where they're where they're struggling with uh, with uh, heart disease on the fish and, and so on. We haven't had that uh, problem in our area. Um, uh, and also breeding, you can you can choose stronger and stronger fish, of course. So oh, yeah, that's yeah. one of the that's one of the issues. Going back to what you were talking about, why farming is is uh, looked at uh, the way it is. It is if you go. 20, 30 years back and the way we were farming then, it was it was not sustainable. Uh, the mortality levels were too high. The use of antibiotics and medicine were extremely high. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it wasn't uh, sustainable done. And that's also, I think, one of the issues we have with um, with uh, in the U.S. with salmon farming is that uh, Canadian farms and American farmers are they are a bit behind Norwegian farms when it comes to uh, the development, the, the technology and the knowledge and everything. Yeah, we are. And the breed, of course, is is, is come longer in Norway than it has in the other countries. Um, how many fish are you raising at any... Oh, wait, you said two, is it two million per year yeah. is what yeah. you're... Okay, okay, got it. And then um, you touched on antibiotics being a thing that... Um, mm you know, was used not by you, but in the past of the industry. How do you, um, yeah. I mean, I mean, I get you, it sounds like you're not, overcrowding is not an issue. So um, maybe disease isn't much of an issue, but what happens when one of your, well, with fish gets sick? How do you treat that? We don't have any uh, sickness. We have, there, in Norway, you know, in our area, we have, uh, we have uh, fight or we have fought all the diseases. So there is, if the fish gets vaccinated before it is put out to sea, and then so there's no issue with uh, with disease. And and we are in the area where if let's say if we get, for example, the ISA disease, that's a that's a, a heart disease that's possible for or a kidney disease that the fish can get, mm-hmm. then it, there's the rule is uh, that you have to empty, you have to just uh, take them out, all of them, to to prevent... uh, I mean, I think the thing that's important to note, uh, there there are a couple of things. One is Quare 
Arctic, we have our own hatchery. It, it's called quarry smolt. Mm. Mm-hmm. So we're raising these fish from the brood stock, which is the moms and the dads, mm-hmm. the eggs mm. all the way to a what's what's called a um, a fry sack and then a fry stage and then the smolt stage. And then they're moved out onto the water. Um, there are a number of preventative measures. It's it's just like you you would you would handle things naturally, like if you were to handle, um, for example, we know now on different farms raising different types of vegetables that they'll put sheep on um, in between the rows or chickens, you know, to add nitrogen to the soil. In the case of Quarry Arctic, they actually raise a lump sucker fish. And these lump sucker fish, um, they live in these artificial kelp beds that are in the pens. And and it, what happened was, what happens is that in the wild, Atlantic salmon know to swim through kelp beds and the lump suckers actually eat the sea lice um, off of the, off of the um, fish themselves. So this was something that was discovered through knowing some of the old fishermen in the, in the early 1970s when the farm was just started. Mm-hmm. And they started to take this method and bring it to the farm. So remember, you know, it's sort of like spraying a bunch of pesticides on a crop. That's a really easy, almost lazy way to do it, mm-hmm. to be able to make sure that your yields were high, where you have a family that has been farming on this water, has known this water for decades. And I mean, this is the oldest fin fish farm in the world in terms of one that's still family owned and been passed down from generation to generation. The kind of learning that they're getting about their area, their water, the meroir, what exists and what lives in that water is unprecedented. And finding, being able to find models and you should, you know, you'll talk about the feed, but where you're really raising a fish that's healthier allows it to adapt in these ways. So I think it's, it's, it's such a different thing. It's why it's um, industry leading. Yeah. Um, what about, what about, and I'm asking you all of these, you know, questions because I just like to kind of get a, a handle on like what happens if, if this situation arises, like, um, but that's really, that's really great to know about kind of how it's very controlled and, and, um, you know, specific from the, from the very, uh, outset. Um, and the idea of lump suckers seems brilliant and gross, but brilliant. <laughs> Natural. Oh, if you see them, Natural. they're so cute. Oh, they're so <laughs> cute. Everybody should look, look on, on quarryarctic.com because the, they're really beautiful yeah. little fish. And they're, I mean, we say it's, it's nature's car wash. No. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> um, so what about esca- like um, fish escaping? Is that ever, has that ever happened? Or are they so happy they don't want to go anywhere? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's um, when you have... Uh, when you have farms like this and you have humans uh, operating them and everything, you will always have a uh, uh, thing happening. But we haven't had any escapes uh, from our farms uh, since uh, since I came into the company. Uh, that's, I came into the company 15 years ago. I don't know if it has anything to do with me, but um, yeah, it's um, we try to do everything better and try to do everything, uh, uh, yeah. So we don't make that happen. But and the, I, and I the technology and, and is outstanding. I mean, you're talking because, about uh, double netting systems with no yeah. copper antifoulant, which is so important that there aren't those metals in the nets because that's not healthy. The way we look at it, we want to be healthy for the environment 
We want to be healthy for the fish and we want to produce fish that's healthy for you. So when we look at, you know, if you look at those as three different silos, you know, for us to make sure that the marine mammal populations, the other fish, the water quality, that has to be exceptionally healthy. That's as, as all mm -hmm. will say, we look at the water as our land. That's what we pass on to the next generation. So if, so if we're using the right technology on the farm, the right netting systems, we won't have escapes. Mm -hmm. These double netting systems. If mm. there was something that would happen, there are emergency nets that immediately will cover over those other nets. Things like um, having the having the the nets cleaned. Now there are think of it like think of it like the automatic you know robo vacuum cleaners. They mm -hmm. go along the outside of the nets and they clean the algae off of the outside of the nets so that more oxygen can get in the water. What, and so what that does that, that can help? What does that? Uh, it cleans the, the algae off of the outside of the nets oh. so that you get better flow through of the water. Um, that's why they used to coat the nets with um, copper antifoulant was to keep the algae from growing. But what they found was in the bucket of bad for the environment, in the bucket of bad for the fish, mm -hmm. having that type of copper antifoulant, it meant that the fish were not, the, everything wasn't code. well. I mean, yeah. You can't, yeah and, and, and it also makes them a little bit loopy, their brain <sighs> development. Um, it's, it's really, it was really inhuman. And and so then when we look at, you know, I mean, ultimately the bucket of what type of fish are we raising that comes to market that's healthier, that's more nutritious, that doesn't have the kinds of, um, you know, toxins in it and that has the highest omega-3s of any farm salmon. So every single step is looking at that entire ecosystem. Um, did you say it was a robo fish? Is that what you said? That does well, that? But, well, there, there are two things. We yeah. have um, kind of a robo vacuum cleaner that vacuums the outside of the nets. Yeah. And, um, and, and all can talk about it. There are coming, we've been, we've been um, working with a company out of Norway that um, was originated in the United States. And they have these robotic fish that go into the pens and collect all of the data. So when you talk about not wanting to stress out the salmon, mm -hmm. you don't want to be pulling out fish or walking along the flotillas of the pens. You need to keep things very calm very zen for the fish and they react when there's something in the pens themselves so these robo fish these robot fish they they mimic the salmon and mimic the motion and they can collect data they can look for sizing all of the information that we need that we can't get unless we were swimming in the in the pens themselves with the fish that is so cool that is just really cool how is that how did you i mean how did that partnership come to be elf yeah, that's uh, that's funny. But it, the name of the company is Aquai, and they, um, they, as you said, they were they originated from uh, San Diego actually, and came uh, came over to Norway, and are now setting up their operation in Norway. No, it it came along because we are um, uh, because we are, uh, uh, yeah, we were uh, in a TV show called PBS, uh, yeah, national channel PBS uh, called. Uh, not 60 minutes, but yeah, oh, I don't remember the name. Something like that. Yeah. Right now, but it, 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 it uh, was looking at the seafood industry and, and farming industry, especially then, and, and the overuse of uh, wild fish uh, for producing, uh, uh, producing salmon. And uh, we were brought forward as one of the good examples. And out of that, uh, these guys from San Diego saw that and and had this robot that they wanted to do uh, do things with uh, to uh, yeah save the oceans, and they saw us as one of the uh, one of the most sustainable farming uh, 
of salmon in the world and and con- contacted us and and wanted to know if there was something they could do to help us uh, uh, yeah develop what we are doing and I. I'm a big fan of uh, data, and uh, yeah. the Norwegian uh, farming industry hasn't um, hasn't moved forward there, and, and needs to needs to uh, move forward and needs to collect more data to know more about what we're doing and and how it's affecting the salmon and and why it's affecting the salmon and what we can do better. So, yeah. uh, bringing them to us and then setting up what we have today, the data platform that they. That we have with all the sensors that we will be able to collect all that data from the from the uh, nets in within the fish uh, school uh, it's going to be or is uh, amazing yeah and all the possibilities that com- yeah. comes with it it's yeah amazing. if you can't if you can't um, measure it you can't manage it <laughs> that's yeah that's so yeah. that's so um, Interesting. Um, so, okay. So, I understand that um, the way and what the the salmon are fed is particularly important and like a, a source of pride at the company. So, Alf, can you um, can you tell us a little bit about the feed? Does it mirror what the salmon would eat in the wild, or what is it like? Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's probably stretching it a bit far, but it it, it tries to give. The fish the same healthy diet as it has in the wild, and we have we have been working now for seven years, no, sorry, eight years with Biomar to develop our own feed. Uh, so we have a feed that is produced only for quarry and and is uh, is unique in the farming industry. It has uh, moved uh, so far that it's um, way beyond all the other farms and, and all the other feeds that are produced for for salmon farming and uh, yeah uh, with with the focus on the sustainability and with the focus on on the, the healthy diet for the salmon so we have uh, gone uh, the complete opposite way of all the other farmers you know farming industry is now using less uh, marine uh, ingredients to and are reducing the Reducing the omega-3 levels in the fish, um, and uh, because the wild fisheries, of course, are are scarce, and there's not a lot of, uh, or there's not more fish to get out from the sea. So, instead of using more marine ingredients that are also expensive, they use more vegetable uh, in the in the feed. Um, so we have gone the opposite way. We have we have looked at how can we how can we still have uh, an uh, omega-3 level that is natural mm-hmm. without taking out so much marine ingredients from the ocean. Uh, so we are, first of all, we're using only cutoffs or trims from uh, from uh, the North Atlantic production of fish, like mackerel, sill, uh, herring, and uh, and cod. Uh, and we're, we're using an algae oil to top it up and to get the uh, omega-3 levels that we need. So we have we actually have a double omega-3 levels as a normal salmon uh, would have, a farm salmon would have. But we have the same amount of omega-3 that are, or even a little bit higher than the wild salmon would have. So that's amazing. And doing that also, we have uh, cleaned the feed for PCB and dioxins. We have a natural colorant. Uh, what, are, what, are use, uh, what are PCBs? What are PCBs? PCBs. Yeah. Uh, those are the toxic, uh, toxic uh, uh, substances that uh, are in the ocean. 
but uh, the fish will accumulate in the in the oily part, uh, uh, and it's part of the pollution that comes from us humans uh, mm. living here. Uh, yeah. So it's part of the part of the ocean after years and years of pollution. So it's uh, part of the fish, mm-hmm. and there are. In all wild fisheries, there are PCB levels in the fish, but it's mostly in the in the fatty part of the fish. And the fatty fish contains more PCBs than a than a lean fish. Uh, but it's uh, normal farming industry. We are under the levels that are uh, are regulated uh, by the governments. But we have we have uh, seen that this is something you c- we could do something with. It's a it's a win-win for everyone. We are taking the PCB and the oxygens out of the fish, the wild fish, and then out of the salmon, the salmon again, and the cutoff from the salmon will then be used in the chicken industry. And hmm. you have a circle of life there where you're taking out some of the PCBs. We're not uh, we're not taking out everything, but we're taking out our bit of it. And, and if everyone did that, we would have... Uh, we would be uh, at the same time cleaning the ocean, so it's a, it's yeah. a win-win for everyone. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What is the fish? So uh, <clears throat> what is the fish and yeah. fish out ratio that I've read about with with what you guys do? What does that yeah. mean? That that tells you how much fish you're using to produce one kilo of fish, and we're we're at the point where we're using zero point forty eight kilos of. Uh, uh, fish to produce one kilo. So we're a net producer of a protein. Uh, and that's amazing also. A normal salmon feed is at 1.6 to 1. Hmm. Uh, so so we out. are way lower. And that's that's because we can use the corbion algae oil, the, the, the cutoffs from the industry that will not go to human consumption and all of those things. And, and being able to, to reduce the fish in, fish out, and still doubled omega-3, that's that's something that most people t- didn't think was possible. But it's possible when you, when you use an algae oil and those things that, uh, that sets you up. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so last question before we go to a, a quick commercial break, but what happens after the harvest? Um, are the pens, I mean, I'm assuming they're cleaned, but like, do they go into operation immediately afterwards or, or what happens? Yeah, after no. that, yeah. No, the, the the rules are quite clear in Norway uh, for following pens or following uh, sites. Uh, when you when you harvest out the site, you have to follow it for a minimum of two months. We uh, follow the sites for uh, a minimum of six months, uh, and that's because we believe uh, uh, that the environment and uh, yeah and the sites need more time to to uh, take care of all the feces and all the all the uh, yeah, yeah. The feces from the fish, and, and mm-hmm. uh, make sure that we're not uh, pushing the the benetics or anything to a point where where we're uh, taking uh, away life from uh, from the benetic or anything. It's it's part of our our land philosophy where we are. We want to take care of the land, and so it can be in a shape where we can hand it over to the next generation. Uh, so we make sure we follow them longer. We take up all the nets and everything and clean it. We take up all the mooring and make sure we clean it also. And and uh, yeah, it's like making uh, disinfected the, mm. the farm and make it ready for the next uh, generation. Mm. 
the the hmm. ocean has this amazing ability to replenish itself. And remember, you have millions yeah. of gallons of water that are mm-hmm. always flowing through those farms. Yeah. So if so, and just like how we need to fallow on land and give the land a chance for those nitrogen and all of those those wonderful mineral the minerality to replenish itself, we feel like giving the area a rest and following that seriously following that same suit is important. And so it it gives gives a, it's it gives a number of opportunities, including being able to check equipment, making sure that everything is up to speed once you go back and you farm in that area. So it's so it's just part of now standard practice. And 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 remember that the water also is constantly checked, and that's um, and so they're checking pH levels, they're doing chem checks, and you never go back to an area unless it's come up back up to the natural um, environment, the state that it was in prior to your farming there. Right, and I imagine you want to take extra you're going above and beyond and this is also true that it's you know they're they're open waters right so you don't necessarily own the waters so you're making sure to like i mean you know to take every kind of precaution uh necessary to make sure that it's as pristine as when you left it that's exactly right. The way these concessions work, a concession is a license, is that this is something that is granted to you mm-hmm. by the government, um, in some cases, depending on where you're farming, by the indigenous people. And so you um, you have a responsibility for that. And if you're not being responsible, then you're going to have your concession revoked. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean meeting minimum standard is not enough for us at Quarry Arctic. So understand that we're not by any means comparing ourselves to the rest of the industry. We are setting our own standards. Yeah. Okay, great. We're going to take a really quick um, commercial break to hear a word from our sponsors. But when we get back, I want to talk more about um, getting the fish to market, what that what that looks like in the supply chain. And of course, how incredibly delicious it tastes. Uh, Stay tuned. Patina Restaurant Group offers unparalleled service in New York's most iconic locations, including Lincoln Center and Macy's Herald Square. Patina is also the exclusive caterer at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. From meetings and presentations in the glass-walled atrium to galas in the renovated palm house and intimate wedding showers at Yellow Magnolia Cafe, your event will be perfectly imagined and customized at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. You can also enjoy brunch and lunch at the picturesque Yellow Magnolia Cafe overlooking Lily Pool Terrace. Executive chef Sarah Flynn's unique menu includes modern dishes with global flavors with a focus on local and seasonal ingredients. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today I'm speaking with Quarry Arctic CEO Ulf Knutsen and Jen Bushman, who is a sustainable aquaculture advocate. Um, okay, so I said that we wanted to talk a little bit more about the supply chain now. Yeah, so let's. So, can you help um, me understand n- after the harvest? How does how do your fish actually get to market? So, what happens after it's harvested? Um, yeah, it's um, it's uh, it's not a long. It's a process. When we harvest it, it uh, of course it goes from the farm with a well boat to the harvest station, then being pumped up and and through the harvest station and packed in boxes. Uh, our fish uh, uh, goes, uh, before we send it to the U.S., to not send everything, we're sending it to processing in uh, actually down to Germany uh, at the moment um, uh, to get closer to the market. The fish needs uh, 36 hours after harvest to uh, to mature and uh, be ready to be 
so we were able to pick out uh, the pin bones and and those things. So we um, truck it down there. It takes between 36 and and 54 hours, and then it will be processed uh, off on day um, day two, and then the, on day three it will fly over and and uh, uh, from all the main airports in in Europe then and, and fly over to uh, to the U.S. and be distributed all over. Okay. Different hubs we have in the U.S. So I love, I should have like prefaced this, but I am particularly interested in this part of the process because the um, the fishing industry, uh, as you guys both know, um, is incredibly opaque in terms of um, being able to trace, you know, <laughs> where your fish came from and where it was processed and how and by whom. And, you know, that's a big issue that industry is facing. So I am particularly excited to that you guys have so much transparency around this process. Um, so it's also why I have so many questions. So, um, okay. So is, uh, is the processing, um, do you oversee that part of it? Like in the operations or you contract with somebody like, and, and by processing, do you break it down or does it go like whole to, to Germany? Uh, no, it, uh, it goes, uh, whole to Germany. Okay. Um, we don't, uh, we contract that out to a company in Germany. We don't uh, own a part of that company, and that's a that's a choice we have made to uh, not uh, do that to, to contract and do only buy from the best processors in mm-hmm. in Europe and also in Norway. Yeah. And we don't oversee it, but we uh, we uh, we have strict regulations and follow up and inspections on on quality with them uh, to make sure that uh, we get what we want uh, out of it. Mm-hmm. So um, I travel at least uh, at least uh, four to five times a year down to the processor myself, and then I have a team of people also in Norway that will follow them up and and talk to them on a daily basis because we are processing uh, almost uh, every day of the week. Uh, yeah, yeah, to make sure we have uh, fish available every day of the week. Wow. And so is it shipped? Mm. So in Germany, will they break it down? Like, will they fillet it or? Um, yeah. Yeah, they will. They, they'll do that. All that in the, in the mm. processor. Yeah, it depends on what the customer they, wants. They break it down to, um, I think that yeah. it's really important to know that. I mean, the customers, both food service and retail, that we're supplying in the United States, they have different types of cuts that they want. Some chefs only want to get whole fish, mm-hmm. so in that case, the fish are going to be cleaned. Odds are they're going to be scaled, and they're going to be shipped just like that. There are other customers that want uh, frozen portions because that's the that's their business model, or we call it a D trim, which are a C trim or an E trim. It's different types of cuts with the pin bones removed, the skin on, the skin off. So it really depends on, on the customer itself. What I will say is that you don't want to cut or fillet a fish right away. One of the things that um, is important to understand with, with any fish is that it needs to go through what we call rigor. And then once it goes through that rigor, it's easier to fillet and better. So it's, it's a process that actually we're able to take advantage of. It comes out, it goes to the harvest station. It can go through rigor and transport, be processed. And then whether it's by cargo ship in the case of frozen fish or in the case of fresh fish by, um, by air cargo, passenger planes mainly, um, hmm. it'll come into the United States. Hmm. Interesting. So it's not always, it's, it could be frozen, but it's not necessarily frozen. Depends on what the customer wants. Yeah. Okay. Okay, great. Um, and then what, uh, how does your location affect uh, the distribution at all? I mean, you're what, like, did I read eight hours away from Oslo? 
so remote. Uh, <laughs> How do you yeah, get? Yeah, it's yeah. quite. Uh, yeah, it's quite uh, remote. That's for sure. Now, it um, the trucks, uh, like I said, they take thirty six hours to get down to Germany. So mm-hmm. it's uh, and it has a lot of uh, weather and everything. Of course, uh, affects uh, the situation in the north of Norway and yeah. and trucking down and everything. It's uh, it's not um, straightforward. That's for sure. But we have. Uh, we always have uh, options. Yeah. <laughs> There's always and and right now we're working on uh, we're working on train uh, and, and train as a solution instead of trucking because there are there are a lot of uh, there's a lot of focus on trucking in Norway and and uh, that it's not good uh, when you have the train option available and everything. So we are working with uh, some of the cargo companies to be able to, to take the train down to Oslo and then it from Oslo instead, yeah. uh, and that will be more stable also because the train. There's a lot. Uh, there's a lot that needs to happen before the train uh, doesn't go. But uh, when it comes to trucks and uh, mountains and everything, getting over those, that's that's uh, more of a problem. Yeah. But we have been um, we have been lucky this year, and we've been lucky most of the time that we have had little or none problem with uh, the trucking. But we always have several trucks on the road in mm-hmm. case something happens with one of them. Mm-hmm. So that's also being smart and, and planning and having a, and a very good logistics situation. Yeah. I have to, um, food is logistics. I can tell you from personal yeah. experience yeah. working yeah. Um, at a logistics yeah. company in the food industry, which people don't realize. Um, I think, you know, it's no. not the first thing that comes to mind, but it's so complicated and, I feel like Murphy's law yeah. always applies. Like if something can go wrong, it it will. So yeah, yeah. And, the, and the customer doesn't mm-hmm. understand any yeah. of the problems. Yeah, yeah. And the goal is to no. yeah, <laughs> they can't like you know the goal is like they they can't know, um, and so it's like whatever you have to do. But I mean, it's it is stressful. Um, so okay, then what are your? This is a also a question near and dear to my heart. This is something that I have. Um, been personally working on with my own company that's been so hard, which is packaging. What are your, how do you yeah. package your fish? It is, I have, it has been so, so difficult to find like really sustainable sources just, f- you know, for me and I, we're not actually dealing with like raw food products. So I can't imagine that this mm. is easy. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, packing is um, of course a big issue when it comes to, to uh, yeah the fish industry and the way we're doing it. It's uh, styrofoam. It's, of course, um, the big uh, thing industry. and the big thing that works. Yeah. It has worked for many, many years. Uh, but it's, uh, we believe it's, uh, or I have known for a while, that we need to find um, solutions for that. And we're working uh, very closely with a company in Norway that has been able to produce uh, uh, recyclable card box boxes that can take the same uh, beating as a, as, a, styrofoam. as a styrofoam box and, and still keep the, the cold and everything and all of those uh, uh, all of those uh, things you look look for when you using a styrofoam box and and we're going to heavily test that and, and make sure that we're sure that it can keep the same and, and do the same as a styrofoam box but mm-hmm. eventually we want to we also want to change the styrofoam because styrofoam is going to be. It has. It is not yet, but it's going to be forbidden at one point. That's ah. my. Uh, 
Yeah. There hasn't been any development in that industry for I don't know how many years, but it's it needs either the industry does something thems, themselves or the then they will be just changed out by recyclable card box uh, boxes instead. Yeah. They can withstand the the water and the and the beating and everything. Yeah, and maintain and insulate. Mm. Um mm. so what um so yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to following your efforts on that because I I know just yeah. how hard it is, but that's amazing that you're yeah. really being proactive on that front. Um mm. so mm. I talked a little bit earlier about transparency and that you guys have, you know, a lot of commitments around this. How are you demonstrating transparency? Yeah, uh first of all, we're we're trying to share as much of the information as possible. We have the discovery app we have with Biomar where you can go in and you can read all about the feed, uh, all the ingredients, all the, the parts of the feed, where it comes from, how it's made and so on. Uh, and then we are working on a blockchain project with IBM, wow. Atea, a Norwegian company, to share everything uh, that the customer wants to know about uh, our production and to be able to, uh, to uh, yeah, give them full transparency. Uh, and full, there's, uh, a, there's a website actually called discoverseafood.world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what you can mm-hmm. do is you can click on that and you'll be able to see all of the nutritionals on the fish, which is exceptionally important because of the feed model, mm-hmm. because of the work that um, we've done with Corbion and with Biomar to have the most nutritious fish that is coming into market, particularly as it relates to um, omega-3s and long chain omega-3s, because there have been issues with the quality of the algae that's being used used in the salmon farming industry. And um, although the fish need this very much in order to be able to survive and to have its brain development, to be able to fight, um, you know, fight disease, but it's been the quality that has been the problem. So it's not necessarily transferring over from a nutritional perspective as, as much as it should be. So all of the nutritionals, again, discover seafood.world. And then you can also see full traceability on every single feed component. So someone would ask, well, where is, you know, where your, where your um, different uh, components of the feed coming from? Well, you would be able to click on that and see that, you know, it's non-GMO. It came from this country. You can see where the algae prime, where the algae, algae from Corbion is coming from. Every single thing on an ongoing basis updated as we use it is available there. And then you'll begin to hear more. Um, there'll be a lot more coming um, on the blockchain, but I can tell you that this will be groundbreaking. It'll be the first ever blockchain program that's been used um, by an aquaculture company. (laughs) That's so cool. I'm really excited about that. I still totally don't understand how blockchain works, even though I've covered it. But <laughs> when that um, <laughs> when that fully you know is launched, I'll definitely have you guys back on to to help me understand it better. Um, okay, so let's talk about uh, let's talk about the fish. Let's talk about how it tastes. Um, what, first, what are the, what are the things that I should be looking for as a consumer? Like, how am I supposed to tell if a you know, if a piece of salmon is good or not, or if, if, if uh, looking at the whole fish, actually. Yeah, uh, Jennifer, you're better at telling this <laughs> than me. So, 
Yes, I mean the. So if I'm looking, if I'm looking at the the whole fish, Mm -hmm. and I'm you know a discerning chef or consumer, there are going to be some things that are kind of what I call the low hanging fruit. First thing is you hear that you're supposed to look for clarity in the eyes, and that the gill tag should be bright. I mean the gills, excuse me, should be bright red. Mm -hmm. Um, In my mind, those are the things that really only um, both of those actually. If the if the fish at all is exposed to oxygen, you can get some browning of the gill tags and the eyes can become cloudy. That doesn't necessarily mean that the fish isn't fantastic. So there are some other things that I actually look for. I make sure that the scales are intact, that the outside of, and if it is scaled, that the skin is very shiny and bright and, 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 and beautifully silver. I look and make sure that if I can, if I can touch the whole fish, I make sure that as I run my hands down the body, that I can't feel any soft marks, that it's very firm down along the body. You'll see um, in a farmed fish, it's very, very important. And you see this on every single quarry Arctic salmon, that the fins are well developed. A lot of poorly reared salmon will not have the dorsal fin and the other fins, that that beautiful center fin fully developed. And, and if the fin is developed, it means they're exercising. So if you think about a muscle being developed, if, if you're not out there exercising and it's not in that water and the water's not really churning around or if the pen density is is too big, meaning there are too many fish on the farm, then they're not going to get the exercise that they need. And one of the things that I thought was exceptional, the first time that I ever saw a quarry Arctic salmon, and Alf may not even um, have heard me talk about this yet, was the development of the muscle all the way into the tail fin that a lot of times on, um, whether it's a wild or a farm salmon, you don't see this really well-developed muscle that literally almost touches the edge of the tail. It'll sort of stop and you'll have more tail on it. Um, The tail should be fully formed. Um, On a salmon that is poorly reared, sometimes the tail won't form or it'll be eaten off by the other fish because, because the density is so tight. So when I'm looking at a quarry Arctic salmon, I'm going to see bright eyes. I'm going to see beautiful, bright red gills. I'm going to see, I'm going to be able to feel it and, and, and be able to feel that the flesh is very, very firm as I go down the body. And then when I fillet it, I'm going to be able to see that it's bright red, that there's no softness. It's, it's, firm and that there's no softness down the center of the fillet, that the fat, you see the fat lines in it and the grain of it is very well defined. Um, and, and, and of course the aroma should be something that is very much like the sea, like the marois. It's going to have this fresh, clean, um, almost sea aroma rather than it being fishy at all. Wow. Okay. That is such a good description, Jen. You're so, there's so, so much information. I love it. So impressive. <laughs> um, okay. So I'm assuming that um, Quarry's fish all looks like this, like, like how it you does. described. It absolutely does. I would say, I mean, the majority of the fish, here's what we want. Uh, at least my goal is that um, every single fish, when it's first being looked at by a buyer, by a chef, look at it whole because I want you to see the structure of this beautifully reared animal. You know, I mean, we, it, we, we make sure that all of the care and effort from the egg all the way to harvest is done. And the way you see that best is if you see the whole animal. 
then from there, most of the customers will end up ordering it, frankly, um, by far as either a D-trim or a C-trim fillet. Mm -hmm. That means skin on, pin bones removed, um, and you're going to just see the fillet. When you look at that fillet, if it has that deep orange, it has that clear, beautiful grain, that bright um, aroma to it, then then we're well on our way, right? I mean, at that point, we can talk about what the nuances are as you as you taste it. And this is no different in my mind than wine. I mean, mm-hmm. there are so many different layers. A, an oyster, depending on what region of the ocean is it's raised in, is going to take on different layers of flavor, just like terroir with wine, meroir with the water and the raising of our fish on this beautiful, clean, clear Arctic water. And the brightness and the cleanness of this fish, firm from a texture perspective, but then also a clean mouthfeel. Um, it doesn't, it's not overly fatty, but it is buttery and it doesn't have um, any sort of residual flavor on the palate. So once you swallow it and you kind of have, you know, taken that moment back after getting a bite, it's very bright and clean, fresh flavor on the palate. So you, so, so it doesn't, for those that are going to be cooking quare up at home, mm. you won't smell it cooking. And a lot of um, consumers won't cook fish at home because they don't want it to stink up the house. Right. Um, that's, you know, well-reared fish um, means that you're going to have something that's very clean, very bright in aroma as well as in flavor. Um, and then what is the, what's the, well, first of all, where, where can you get it? Now you just had a, you just uh, announced a very big partnership with Whole Foods, right? Yeah, we have, uh, yes. Whole Foods is, um, uh, has taken it into, uh, Four regions, mainly in the mid, uh, mid uh, west and the uh, and the north, uh, yeah, Canada, north, uh, north uh, west. Yeah. So Whole Foods so it, in it, certain it, regions, and then. And then we also yeah. have um, food service. So mm. there are a number yeah. of distributors that are distributing out, it, distributing it, distributing it now in New York and beyond. Um, mm. We have some great partners with Compass Group and FoodWorks in Chicago and others. Remember that we only um, brought Quarry Arctic into market on February first. Yes, there was this relationship through another distributor that brought it in unbranded into mm-hmm. Whole Foods. So the supply chain was very clear. And so we, um, all from the team, knew very well how to get the fish from, from you know, this, this remote region into the United States market. Mm-hmm. But now what we're doing mm-hmm. is we want it to be available as food service recovers. I have to say, you know, as communities come back and our food service industry is always that first place. You know, if you think about 9-11, the first thing that we wanted to do after this tragedy was over was get back to eating, sitting around a table together, connecting as a community together around a beautiful plate. And that's what we want for this beautiful fish is to tell this story, essentially have this chain of well-being from the water all the way to this incredible experience that you would have eating it, that you know and understand all of the care. You can see and picture the farm, the people and we want to be able to join you in that in celebration wherever you're living now in this in this time of trial in your communities if it's supporting the food community supporting it at retail to make sure you're getting good food at home that's where quarry arctic wants to be well i want to make sure i can still get it so, <laughs> so go to whole foods right so, now you'll be able to get it at whole foods okay and so in new york i can get it in whole foods then just to be clear that's correct okay and what's the price yeah. point on the on the fish how does that compare 
Uh, that depends on uh, for Whole Foods. You know, they are they are running it uh, on a special price because they uh, they um, want to attract customers. So it's nine ninety nine or ten ninety nine. I think it's in New York, but yeah, nine ninety nine per pound. So uh, it's not. Uh, That's very not reasonable. Super no, yeah. not at all. Um, uh, but then again, uh, others are yeah selling it a bit higher. It's more it's 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 in the premium category. So it's uh, I have seen um, other prices uh, that is around uh, more around sixteen seventeen per pound. So yeah. yeah, that seems more like what it what it the value yeah. or what it you know yeah. <laughs> should be ten ninety nine is uh, yeah. very generous. Um, <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's a commitment. It's a commitment to Whole Foods, though, and yeah. they yeah. they have certain items. Um, it it happened as Amazon came in as owners, mm. where they felt like they needed to be offering to their community items at cer- at a certain price point. And so we have a commitment to. I mean, think the standards that Whole Foods has driven and the partnership that Alf and the team have really led with Whole Foods mm-hmm. means that we want to stay committed to that. Where their director of sustainability, Carrie Brown. Brownstein, their buyers, the entire team. It's a very important partnership to us. And so so we want to be diverse. We want um, people to know what Quarry Arctic is doing. We want to be working with chefs and with other food um, food service entities. But but this partnership with, with um, Whole Foods is ex- exceptionally important and, and uh, we'll continue to have that in some way. Yeah. Okay. So um, last question before we wrap up, but I want to know for each of you, um, Ulf, like how you enjoy this fish. What's your favorite way to cook it? So Ulf, is there, is there a special Norwegian recipe you like to use with, with your salmon? <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah. Tell us. Yeah. My, my, favorite, uh, my favorite way to enjoy the salmon is, of course, uh, raw. That's the... That's what I eat, eat most of uh, when it comes to the salmon, just fresh and uh, as uh, sashimi. Uh, but also I uh, baked in the oven uh, the options and the taste you can add on to the fish or with the fish is just uh, amazing. So I, we we cook a lot of that also. You know, my kids are salmon lovers. Yes, um, I hope so. so. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and, they, and they love the smoked salmon. That's the oh, yeah. that, like mm. candy. Yeah. So, uh, so I'm lucky to have a father-in-law that smokes salmon and and uh, comes um, come to the door with it for us. So That's I amazing. just got a, a new uh, load yesterday, actually. So kids are happy. Yeah. And Jen, how about you? I mean, I I have been a fan of the grill for many years. I was the spokesperson for Weber Grill, and I love that <laughs> gorgeous kind of charred deliciousness that a grill and 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 cooking over fire can can bring. That could be in my mind. That can be in a grill pan. If you know, if you're in an apartment in New York City, I, I've always said, you know, if I could only choose one pan out of the kitchen, I would put the grill pan on my back and and <laughs> off I would go. So whether it's the grill pan, the broiler, the grill outside something where you can get that gorgeous caramelization on it. Salmon is very, very easy to cook. 
So for those that are listening that are just coming in and firing up their ovens or their stoves for the first time as we look inward and we need to we need to cook, this is something where a, a six ounce filet, sear it on a very you know hot pan, a little bit of oil before you add the fish, season it with salt and pepper, get it in the pan, put it skin side down, let the skin get nice and crispy, turn it over, let it brown and really get golden brown, like the color of um, brown sugar, nice and golden brown on the top, and then uh, take it off and enjoy it with a salad or vegetables. This is something so easy to have right now, especially during a time when we need delicious, nutritious food. So just keep it simple. The, the fish will stand up for itself. Yeah. And don't overcook it. <laughs> that drives me crazy. And don't overcook it. People but this overcook is a fish salmon. where it, It's so true. But this is a fish where um, it really is the meat lover's fish and you can overcook it. It will not get dried out like a wild salmon will. There's yeah. enough fat in it, enough moisture in it. So what I mainly tell people is don't be afraid. Go yeah. in, pick up a little bit extra, freeze it right now in portions as you're building a pantry to have some stock and, yeah. um, and, you know, enjoy quarry Arctic right now. And, and, you know, and we'll be there. It will be there right there with you, making sure that you've got good, good, healthy fish to be able to feed yourselves and your families and those you love. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, but I want to thank you both so much for, um, for dialing in, for ta- to talking with me for well over, I think an hour. I really enjoy learning more about, about everything and, um, stay healthy to both of you. We absolutely will. And same with you, your family, and all of your listeners. We're so happy to support Heritage Radio. What an incredible project. Please let us know if there's anything we can do. Thank you. I also want to give a big thanks to our sponsor, our show, our sponsors. Um, Our show engineer is Jeet Paul, and music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the HRN uh, HRN website or as a podcast wherever you find them. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. Leave me a comment. Let me know your think. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening. Eating Matters is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right-hand side of our homepage. Thanks for listening.